one more announcement not mentioned is we do have these invitations. Um, I have one up here if, you, if there aren't any left in the back uh, for the Mother's Day luncheon. And that will be May 6th, the Saturday. Uh, May 6th, first Saturday in May. That is one week before Mother's Day. And it will be from 2 to 4 p.m., starting at 2 here in the gym at Lakeshore. Um, and uh, my wife, Jackie, will be the speaker. And it is a ladies-only event. And I believe that is also mentioned in your bulletin, uh, or will be. Okay, at this time, if you turn to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 10. We'll be starting at verse 32. For the past few weeks, we've been examining the book of Mark. Today, we're especially looking at Palm Sunday, as recorded in the book of Mark, as well as a few of the events leading up to Palm Sunday and following, or on that day, as Jesus arrived, made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32 and going through chapter 11, verse 26. And in this passage, we find three events this morning that show us how Jesus truly is the Messiah and our Lord, and how we ought to worship him today as our Lord. Let's open in prayer for this message, and we'll begin looking at this first event the first of three events that show us how Jesus truly is the Messiah and our Lord and how we ought to worship him as our Lord today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one gathered here this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, fill me with your Holy Spirit and speak through your word this morning to the hearts and minds of each one present here. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who does not know you as their personal Savior, that they would come to know you this morning through the preaching of your word and the conviction of your Holy Spirit working on our hearts. And Lord, for those of you here who know you personally as Lord and Savior, I pray that we would be further inspired and reminded now how the Bible proves, how your word proves that Jesus is the Messiah, how you are our Lord, how your plan all along was to die for us, for our sins, to ransom us, to pay for us, to free us, to redeem us from those sins at Calvary. We thank you for the songs that have reminded of that, us of that truth this morning. And we just pray, Lord, that going from here this morning, we'll leave encouraged and renewed in the fellowship that we have with you through your word, through your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood that was shed for us. For your glory, Lord, now we look into your word. We thank you for it. May you be glorified through this message now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The first event in this passage in Mark this morning that, re that tells us, that shows us how Jesus is the Messiah and our Lord and how we should be reminded to worship him as such remembering his power, his authority as our Lord. The first event is Jesus reminding his disciples of his purpose and coming to earth. Jesus had done this already twice in, uh, we, as we looked at last Sunday morning. 
He had already reminded his, he had already explained this to his disciples twice. And now we see it again here in Mark chapter 10, verse, beginning at verse 32. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him and scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Notice this is even before Palm Sunday occurs, which is in Mark chapter 11, as Larry read for us this morning in the scripture reading. This is all part of the plan. It's foreordained by God from the beginning. Because of God's foreknowledge, he knew that when he created man, and when he gave man the free will, the free choice to obey or disobey God's command, that man would disobey. And because God is holy, we, all, all, we, we tend to think in our modern culture of God as only loving and forgiving. And he is very loving and forgiving. He's so loving and forgiving that he made this way for us to be saved that he sent his only son to die in our place, to shed his blood on the cross, to cover, to remit, to wash away, to purge our sins so that we are redeemed, we are ransomed by his blood, and we do not have to suffer that punishment if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for our sins and that he rose again the third day. If we believe that good news, that gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God unto salvation, we are saved. And through that gospel, and through the ministry of this church this week, we had three people who professed that faith this week through the ministry of this church. Tuesday night on visitation, uh, we talked with a lady in our neighborhood uh, who said she had, uh, pro she professed that she had been a she believed she was a believer, but she wasn't 100% certain. You know, she had been with another denomination where perhaps the gospel was not as clear. And having heard our presentation of the gospel message, she responded by praying to accept Christ as her Savior on Tuesday night. On Wednesday night here at the Bible Church of Lakeshore, right here on the playground, we had three seventh grade children, two girls and, and a guy, that were just hanging out on the playground. I went out and invited them in uh, to Awana and to a prayer meeting, whichever they chose to join. Our Awana club is technically up to sixth grade, but I think we could have allowed them to join perhaps. But I also invited them to the Bible study and prayer meeting. Just come sit. If you want to come sit in the back row and just stay for the, the Bible study, you can do that. Just, I invited them, talked with them. Of course, you know, they shied away from it, but I gave them each Gideon New Testament. I gave them each a church track with our service times and website, and I gave them each a life book that is also distributed by the Gideons uh, aimed at teenagers. And then I uh, talked with them just a little bit, you know, asked them what their names were, where they're from, and two of them I knew because one of them has been here in a morning service in the, just a couple of weeks ago. And uh, another one was 
from the family that we gave one of the Christmas uh, and Thanksgiving baskets that we collected at that time, just this past uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas season from our church. And so both of them I had, con had contact, had knocked on their doors and talked to their mother, and, and uh, in one case, the grandmother. So I knew two of the girls already a little bit. I uh, had known, their, had inter been introduced to them personally before, knew them by name before, as well as then. The boy met him for the first time. The boy said, his name was Tommy, uh, that he was already a believer and that he had prayed to accept Christ as his Savior in the past. And, uh, you know, I invited him to, get, to come out for church. Let's pray that uh, they will come out, get involved. And uh, the two girls, they said, after explaining the gospel to them, and they followed uh, and listened and were, seemed interested. And then I got to the point where I asked them if they believed that. They said they did. And they said, you know, they've prayed to God before, but they've never prayed to trust Christ as their Savior. And so they did that on Wednesday night, um, just prior to my coming in and, and leading the, the Bible study. We got started start a little late that night, but um, praise the Lord. Uh, should that be sincere on their part? I, I enforce to them, as long as you believe this in your heart, it's not just words you're saying, you believe this in your heart, and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you are saved. And uh, having given them those uh, life books, I hope they'll read them and those New Testaments, and I'll be following up with them. But that is the reason Jesus came. He came to die in our place. So that when we put our faith in him, we become his children. We are saved from our sins. He gives us these details. He had given some details previously to his disciples. When he asked Peter in Mark chapter 8, he had asked his disciples and they said that some say, he said, who do men say that I am? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. That's in uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 28. And then verse 29, he said, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah. And he charged them that they should tell no man. And we looked at that last Sunday as the importance of not separating Christ's identity from his purpose, because he went on to tell them his purpose. You cannot believe that he is the Messiah, he's come as the Messiah, and not understand his purpose. Before you tell people that Jesus is Messiah, make sure you understand his purpose. And he went on to tell them in verse 31 of that passage in Mark 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and of the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And they weren't ready for that. Peter actually started to rebuke him, and Jesus had to set him straight on that matter. And then a little while later, Jesus again in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, it says, Mark 9, verse 30 says, And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. He told them a second time. And then in our passage this morning, our text this morning in Mark chapter 10, notice he adds some more details this time. Not only that men shall take him and kill him, and he will suffer many things and then rise again the third day after being killed, but notice he's very specific now. He will be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. It's the religious leaders that are going to crucify Jesus not just man in general. It's his enemies among the scribes and 
Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And the Romans will carry out the sentence of crucifixion that the Jewish religious leaders were not authorized to carry out. Verse 34, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit on him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Third time that he's given them the details of his death and resurrection on the third day. And it's going to come to pass, as we're going to look at on Friday and on next Sunday, it's going to come to pass. He tells his disciples three times ahead of time. The very first time he told them, it may have been as much as six months ahead of time. Now it's about a week ahead of time here in Mark chapter 10. Perhaps a little bit more. There's some other events that are discussed in the other Gospels that Mark leaves out between the healing of blind Bartimaeus at the end of this chapter and his triumphal entry. But the time is short. And when we get to Palm Sunday, we know it is only a matter of days before he is crucified. So the first event here is he reminds his disciples of his purpose. And the first part of this is telling them very specifically the details that he is going to die. He is going to rise again the third day. He tells them that very clearly. But also he has to rebuke. When he, in his reminding his disciples of his purpose in coming to earth, he has to stop and rebuke his disciples because again, they get focused on they seem to miss the point that he's going to die. They seem to just, it goes over their head once again, as we know from their reaction to his death. And they're not expecting him to rise again the third day for some reason. Even though he told them three times he'll rise again the third day, they just don't seem to get it, don't seem to believe it. And we see evidence of that once again here that he's speaking, he's telling them very clearly, and they're not getting it because look at their response in verse 35. They're arguing amongst themselves. Um, they had been arguing previously amongst themselves about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And here now, James and John are going to bring forth a request. And from Matthew, we, uh, we see a parallel passage in Matthew chapter 20. You actually see their mother, Salome, may be a sister of Mary, Jesus' mother. So James and John may actually be Jesus' physical cousins. And so perhaps they think by that right, they have some, uh, the right to be the privileged couple as Jesus' inner circle already, that they will be, have a special place in his kingdom. But Jesus is not about to set up his millennial reign on earth. That's what they're missing here. He's about to suffer and die and rise again. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. That's a big request. Uh, they're asking Jesus for a blank check here. Uh, and uh, Jesus is not going to give it. Now, he asks them a question, as Jesus often does. When he's asked a question, he responds with a question. Verse 36, And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? He doesn't just say no, but he does ask, What would, it that I sh what would you that I should do for you? Verse 37, And they said unto him, Grant unto us, that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, 
Ye know not what ye ask? Can ye, be, can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to say, Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me, the cup of his sufferings that he's about to drink of. The emotional suffering, especially, that he is going to take on on the cross when Jesus turns from him on the cross because he's bearing our sins upon him. He became our sin for us on the cross. And that suffering that he is going to go through, physically, emotionally, can you drink the cup that I drink of? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I be baptized with? And I believe that refers to his being killed and dying and being buried, his baptism. We're buried with him in baptism unto death. Baptism, water, our water baptism is a picture of Christ's death and then his resurrection. And notice their response in verse 39. They, they don't really, I don't think, grasp what Jesus is saying here. Notice their response. And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall ye be baptized. And I believe that that is referring to the way in which James, he's going to be one of the first martyrs. He's going to be the first of the 12 apostles to suffer martyrdom. I believe that is a fulfillment of this and some of the sufferings that John will go through, being exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which we see in Scripture, and according to tradition, being uh, boiled in oil, but surviving, uh, and then living to an old age, but having suffered that cup, and then eventually he will die, although according to tradition, John does not die a martyr's death, um, he still dies. And so they don't really know what they're asking for here, and Jesus promises, well, that will, that will be the case. As with most of the this, uh, apostles, according to tradition, they will die martyrs' deaths, except for John. But notice verse 40, what, the, what, jo what John and his brother James were asking for here. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Jesus is the one that's going to be sitting on the right hand of God. He is God. He alone is God. And they are not to put themselves in the place of Christ. They are not, we are not to elevate ourselves to the point of Christ. Verse 40, But to sit on the right hand and my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And there are rewards prepared in heaven. And it's not for, for us to try and work for rewards for our own benefit. But rather, notice what... Um, Notice in verse 41, the other disciples are not very happy to hear this uh, request by James and John. Verse 41, And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John, and Jesus called them. But Jesus called them, and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be greatest among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. And in verse 45, ultimately Jesus is the prime example of this. And ultimately this is the key verse of the entire book of Mark. The purpose verse, if you will. The one that sums up the entire book of Mark, the entire gospel of Mark in one verse is verse 45 of here in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, Jesus, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, 
but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. We are to live lives as the children of God, as his disciples, as his followers, as believers in Jesus. We are to live lives of self-sacrifice, of service to our fellow believers and to our fellow man as we seek to serve by bringing them the gospel, by living a life that brings people to Jesus, that points people to Jesus with our lives, seeking to honor the Lord with our lives, seeking to serve others with our lives. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And ultimately, the most important service ministry that he did was on the cross, ransoming us, paying for our sins in our place. And so we are to live that type of self-sacrifice where we give up like the rich young ruler in the the same passage was not willing to do, we give up anything that, that Christ requires of us to give up for him. And ultimately, you know, pastors are under shepherds for God, and they're called ministers. That's servant. Deacons are called, uh, the word deacon means servant. And so those, even in the church, who are given responsibilities of oversight, over ministries of the church, are the servants of the church, not overlords. We are to minister, not to be ministered unto, following Christ's example. So this is all reminding, once again, in verse 45, Jesus, in this entire section of Scripture, is reminding his disciples why he came. And you can use verse 45 as the key verse for all of the book of Mark. Why did he come? He came as a suffering servant to die for our sins on the cross. That's why he came. The second event here in this passage that shows us that Jesus is the Messiah and he is our Lord that we ought to worship is the testimony we have of blind Bartimaeus and how Jesus rewards the faith of blind Bartimaeus. So the second event we have here pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is our Lord. Not just a man, not just another prophet, not just a teacher. He is God, he is Lord, he is the Messiah who came to die for our sins and redeem us, our Savior, our Lord. We see this testified to by blind Bartimaeus and Jesus' reward of his faith. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples, and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging, And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. Notice he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. It's where Joseph had had lived. He had gone to Bethlehem, you may remember. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus was born in Bethlehem by the Virgin Mary. Joseph was not the physical father, but a stepfather, the legal father by marriage to Mary. And they... uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. But Joseph, you know, because of Herod seeking to kill Jesus, not knowing who Jesus was, killing all the uh, male children, two years and younger, in Bethlehem, Joseph was warned by a dream, takes Mary and Jesus, the little young Jesus, to Egypt. And at the appointed time, uh, God prompts him that uh, he can return. And he goes to Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grows up. And so Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth, because that's where he grows up, even though he's born in Bethlehem. And he 
physically through Mary and legally through Joseph, his father, is a son of David. He's in the line of kings through his legal father, Joseph, and he's physically goes back, it traces his lineage, his heritage, his genealogy goes back to David, King David of Israel, through Mary, his mother. And the blind Bartimaeus recognizes that. Even though Jesus is called when he asks, who is it? Who's going by? He hears the commotion. He hears the crowd. You know, blind have that acute sense of hearing because they can't see. They develop that acute sense of hearing. He recognizes something unusual is going on. He asks what it is. He hears it's Jesus of Nazareth, and he recognizes that name. He's heard of that name, and he has faith in that name. From what he has heard, not what he has seen because he's blind, but what he has heard, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. We see that through the testimony that he says, Jesus, the son of David referring to the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah in the line of David. He is heir to the throne of David. Blind Bartimaeus is recognizing that by faith. And his faith will be rewarded here. He's giving testimony that Jesus is Messiah. Look at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me testifying to his faith that Jesus is Messiah and that Jesus has the power to heal him. Verse 48, And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more a great deal, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Notice his faith is so strong that he cannot be dissuaded by the reasoning of other people. His faith is so strong He's crying out to Jesus, and this is what we need to do with our earthly problems, with our earthly cares, is take it to Jesus in prayer, like the blind Bartimaeus is doing here in this passage, taking it to Jesus, crying out to Jesus, because he knows Jesus can help him. He believes Jesus can heal him. He believes, I believe through this testimony of saying the son of David, that Jesus is the Messiah. Thou son of David, have mercy on him. He cried all the more. He's persistent because he believes. If you really believe something, you know, if you don't really believe something, you might say something, and then, you know, when the pressure is on, you fall away from it. But here the pressure is on by his fellow man. You know, be quiet, Bar Barnabas, be quiet. And he cries out all the more because of his faith. And Jesus is going to reward that. Look at verse 49. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose up and came to Jesus. You know, it would have been an outward garment that perhaps would have slowed blind Bartimaeus down as he comes to Jesus. Notice that he casts anything that would keep him from Jesus, anything that comes between him and Jesus, anything that's going to slow him down and coming to Jesus, he casts it aside and goes straight to Jesus because of his great faith in Jesus and the power that Jesus has. And we as believers, as his children, need to have that same faith in Jesus today and his power and taking our prayers to him, believing that he will answer. We're going to see that testified at the end of this passage as well. But look at verse 51. And Jesus answering and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. Jesus is rewarding his faith. And this is also a good example of salvation. Jesus is passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. As far as we know, he'll never be passing through Jericho again. This is Bartimaeus' last opportunity, unless Jesus happens to pass through there. We don't know. 
between his resurrection and his ascension for 40 days he's on earth, this is his last chance. And that ministry that Jesus has after his resurrection seems to be mostly to his disciples, the people who already believed on him. Before his crucifixion, this is, these are some of the last opportunities for someone to become a follower of Jesus before he's crucified. Other than hearing the gospel when his disciples preach it after Pentecost, when the church is founded, this is his last opportunity to respond here and be healed by Jesus himself. And he takes the opportunity, he's persistent, he believes, he cries out to Jesus, he comes to Jesus, and he is rewarded for his faith. The blind man said unto him, Lord, notice he calls him Jesus Lord, that I might receive my faith, my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately, notice there was no stages here, like Jesus did with the last blind man, where he saw vaguely at first, because this man, Bartimaeus, has faith. Jesus rewards that faith, heals him immediately. And notice he followed Jesus in the way. Bartimaeus immediately follows Jesus. And then our third event this morning that shows that Jesus is our Messiah and our Lord, who we ought to worship as our Lord and serve as our Lord today. Our third event is Jesus demonstrating his authority as he enters Jerusalem, which is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. It's why we have the palm leaves here on the table and uh, in the lobby as you entered. What we celebrate on Palm Sunday, right here in Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, our third event, showing that Jesus is our Messiah and Lord. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 11. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. Looking at the uh, parallel Gospels, which we won't have time to do, it appears that these two disciples... Are, Jane, are, are excuse me, John and Peter, because John and Peter are the two that are called to go and reserve the upper room as well, which is not detailed here in Mark. So they're probably Peter and John going to fetch the colt that Jesus will enter Jerusalem on. At the Mount of Olives, he sends forth two of his disciples. Notice the first way that Jesus demonstrates his authority as he enters Jerusalem, as he gives his disciples instructions, or even orders, if you will, and they follow them because of his authority. They follow him. They don't question. They just go and they do it. Verse 2, And he saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied, whereon never a man sat. Loose him and bring him. Notice also testifying of Christ's power that he is not any ordinary man. He knows exactly where the colt's going to be that the colt has never been ridden on, that it's going to be tied, and that somebody's going to ask them about why they're taking him. He knows all those details ahead of time because he's God. He has foreknowledge. Verse 3, And if any man shall ask you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him. And straightway, right away, he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door, without in the place where two ways met, and they loose him, just as Jesus said. And just as Jesus said, verse 5, And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the coat, the colt? Just as Jesus had predicted, they are asked. And notice Jesus' authority once again is demonstrated here because the owner submits to Jesus' request, showing the authority that Jesus has in this event. 
And they, verse 6, And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, his disciples speaking to the owner, and they, the owners, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and casting their garments on him, also showing the honor that they have for Jesus' authority as the Messiah, he sat upon him, the colt. And remember, this colt had never been sat on. If you know horses or donkeys, if the donkey, the horse, has never been broken, has never been ridden, it will not allow someone to ride him. But Jesus is God. And even the donkey, even this colt, recognizes the authority of Jesus, the creator of that donkey. And Jesus sits on that colt, and it gives him no trouble whatsoever. Just another sign of who he was. For another testimony, this colt has never been ridden, and it's allowing Jesus to ride him, showing Jesus' authority. In verse 8, And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. This is like rolling out the red carpet. It's rolling out a path for Jesus to walk on, showing their respect, showing their honor, showing their tribute to him as the Messiah. And this is prophesied of in the Old Testament. And so the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the scribes, the, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, they're witnessing this, will know from their study of the prophets that Jesus is fulfilling prophecy here, and it disturbs them that he is coming in the same way that the Messiah was prophesied to come and enter Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the prophecy. They see it. They're disturbed, of course. And notice verse 9, the testimony of those by the words that are spoken at Jesus' triumphal entry. The actions that they, they, they do in putting, laying the clothes and the palms in the way for Jesus to come to, uh, for his path, for the feet of the colt to walk on. That action is a testimony to his authority, and another action is the words they speak, saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he that cometh in the, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, further witness, further verbal witness of who Jesus is. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, and he went unto Bethany with the twelve. So notice he enters Jerusalem, and then he leaves, retires to Bethany. And now notice the next morning, Jesus is still, upon his entry into Jerusalem, still demonstrating his power and authority, and the authority he has over nature, over the fig tree, verse 12. On the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he, hungry, he was hungry. Doesn't, uh, although Lazarus and Mary and Martha are in Bethany, perhaps he was not staying with them because Martha probably would have fed him. Uh, he's hungry. Uh, perhaps he was uh, praying early that morning in the, in the, the Olivet area, which would be, uh, a, a, that would be in custom for him to do. And he's hungry in that morning. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves... And that's a cue that it should have fruit because the fruit is supposed to develop before the fig leaves. Even though it's not that time of year, this tree in the, in the Olivet region, Olivet region gets plenty of sun and it is not um, unreasonable for it to have fruit already, even in this time of the year, in, a, in the Easter season, 
Even though the season is going to be more of May-June, it's not out of reason that it should be expected that Jesus would think there should be figs on this tree. There's leaves, there should be figs, because the figs develop before the leaves, and there's leaves and no figs. That's deceptive. It should be, there should be fruits. And the fig tree, as often does in Scripture, represents Israel. Jesus comes to his people, Israel, and they reject him as Messiah. They're about to crucify him. They're going to reject him as their Messiah. And the fig tree represents Israel. And notice what he says. Seeing the fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, and if happily he might find anything thereon, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee there, there hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. He's going to come back to that tree later. It's going to be withered from the roots and dead. And it represents what's going to happen to Israel. Another prophecy of Jesus is that the temple will be destroyed. And we see that filled in, those details filled in for us in Matthew. It's a parallel passage that Mark doesn't give us all the details of, but he goes on to tell us of how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed by the, it's going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. That's going to happen in 70 AD by the Romans. It's going to be a prophecy fulfilled. And this is a picture of that with the fig tree here in Mark chapter 11. And then we further see Jesus' authority in his triumphal entry demonstrated with his cleansing the temple. Look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. The problem here was they were too far in. They were in the temple. They were supposed to be outside the courtyard. Apparently, they're actually in the Gentiles' courtyard. And this makes Jesus very upset that they're taking an area of the temple that's supposed to be reserved for worship and prayer, and they're selling, and they're making money here instead. It's not the, pro the problem is not that they're making money or that they're changing the money and selling the doves, although I believe they were taking advantage and making, charging more than they should from what we know of that culture. And that would have made him angry as well, but especially the fact that they're in an area they're not supposed to be. They're in the temple. Verse 16, And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. So that's a problem. They're, not, they're obstructing what's supposed to be going on in this area. Verse 17, And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Notice he has anger, but he has no sin. He demonstrates his authority by throwing out, by overturning the tables of the money of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Notice he doesn't harm the doves, but he overthrows their, the seats of them selling the doves, and he, and he overturns the table. Coins go all over the place. People are scrambling for this money. He has caused this problem, and it ultimately brings the judgment. This is, this is the final straw for the scribes and Pharisees who already hated him, who already wanted to undermine his authority, who was already jealous of his power and authority. For he taught as one that had more authority than the scribes. They were already jealous of him. This is the last straw for them. Look at verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. And of course, later that week, by Friday, they will have uh, brought him to Pilate and had him condemned and crucified. Verse 18. 
and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his doctrine. They're going to end up coming to him in the middle of the night with Judas Iscariot, the traitor, and taking him to a secret, illegal trial of the Sanhedrin, and then taking him to Pilate because they fear the people. They fear, fear to do it openly because of Jesus' great authority that he has. And tonight we're going to look at the rest of this passage in the, in the next chapter as well at the authority of Jesus being questioned by his enemies among the religious leaders and how they're going to come and try to trip him up with certain questions. And we're going to see how Jesus responds to that. And then, of course, Friday we'll be looking at the passion of Christ his trial, his, his arrest in Gethsemane, his trial, and his death. And then next Sunday, we will be looking in the book of Mark at Jesus' resurrection. But lastly, I want you to look again at the result of Jesus' authority over the fig tree. He has command over the fig tree. Verse 20, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So this is another morning later. So this is now, Palm Sunday was the beginning of the passage. Then we had Monday where he found the fig tree with leaves and no fruit. Now this is Tuesday. Tuesday morning. They come of this week. Friday is, I believe, the day he is crucified. Some will say Thursday. We'll talk about that maybe Friday. But uh, verse 20. In the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter called to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest, it is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, notice he turns the conversation here, not talking about, yes, I, I know, this is what the fig tree represents. That whole conversation is in Matthew of what the fig tree represents. What he turns, what Mark focuses on here is the power of prayer. Jesus has great power and authority, and he gives that us that power and authority to us through prayer as well. If we have faith, look what Jesus says to us today. Like blind Bartimaeus who had faith and cried out to Jesus, we can cry out to God, we can cry out to Jesus in prayer today. Look at what Jesus tells us. Have faith in God, verse 22, for verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice he has to believe, and it has to be, of course, in the name of God. We can't just uh, take, we're talk, it talks about many other passages and several other passages of Scripture. We cannot pray to consume it upon our lusts. Oh, I can get anything I want, so let's pray for a brand new car. Let's pray the get uh, a, a large sum of money. No, we, we don't do that. That's not what Jesus means here. If it's something that God wants to do and that he's waiting for us to ask him and we ask him in faith, he will do it. That's how we have to pray, in the will of God for something God wants to do and he's waiting for us to ask him. And look at verse 24. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye Receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive. And here's a condition, another condition that sometimes we fail to meet when we pray. Besides not believing that Jesus will answer, besides not believing God will answer our prayers, another obstacle to our prayers can be not forgiving one another. Look at verse 25, a condition for prayer. And when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, 
you have something against someone, someone has offended you, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you. Because God promises that he will not hear the prayer of the unrighteous. We have to be right with God. We have to be clean before God, have our conscience clean, have confessed our sin, and have it forgiven. And in order for that to be forgiven to the point where God will hear our prayer, we have to forgive others. Forgiven is different from justification. This is not saying that you have to confess all your sins the moment you pass from this earth or you're condemned to hell. It's not saying that. It's saying because that's, that's a matter of justification. We are unconditionally for justified, declared as a guilty sinner to be not guilty because what Jesus did for us on the cross, because he was eternal. He had no beginning. His life dying because he had no beginning. Jesus was the eternal God. He is the eternal God. When he died, his death counted for everyone. It was sufficient to pay for the lives of every person who believes and for all of the sin that is committed any time during a lifetime. But it's such a severe sacrifice. It's such a picture of Christ's great love and God's great love and sending his son to die for us that also pictures how serious sin really is to God, that he would demand that his son lay down his life to pay for our sins, reminds us of how terrible sin really is and how we need to avoid living in it. We can't excuse it in any way because... It was so serious to God that his son paid for it with his life. So let's remember to be forgiving one another so that Jesus, so that God will hear our prayers. We have access to the power and authority of Jesus that he has as our Lord through prayer. Verse 26, but if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. And again, that's referring to answering our prayers um, our prayers and faith. Uh, make sure that we're right with God, that we're right with one another. Very important. So we have looked at this morning three events in this passage from Mark 10, verse 32 to Mark 11, verse 26. How we ought to worship Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, as the Messiah. It's clearly seen that he is Messiah. It's demonstrated when he reminds his disciples of why he came to this earth to die for our sins and to rise again the third day. And it's also demonstrated by the faith of blind Bartimaeus who was rewarded for that faith by being healed. And we can be healed today. If there's anyone here who has not put your faith in Christ, I, I pray, I hope that you will come forward at this time as we close in prayer and do so this morning or speak with me or another person at the front this morning concerning how to be saved. And that third event was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he demonstrated his power and his authority. And we looked at many examples in his triumphal entry of Jerusalem over the course of those first couple of days, Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, where he demonstrated it when his disciples went and got the colts, and how the colt submitted to him, how he was recognized as Messiah, and how he demonstrated his power of the fig tree and the power of faith and prayer that we still have access today through Jesus because of his power and authority that we see evidenced at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Let's always remember Jesus has that power still today and we have access through it to it through prayer.
Let's close in prayer at this time.